<laughs> yeah, stay human, baby. <laughs> Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. For episode 155, we have the legendary Tony Boone. Tony has made a career in the world of trail building that spans three decades and was the Lifetime Achievement Award recipient from the Professional Trail Builders Association at the 2023 International Trail Conference this past April in Reno, Nevada. If you know Tony, you know that he brings a bunch of life wisdom and humor during this conversation. Cooley Creative is the title sponsor for this episode. They design and build custom websites as well as help companies with branding, photography, and e-commerce. Cooley Creative was started in Wisconsin, but is now based out of Bend, Oregon. Jared from Cooley Creative is a friend of mine. We've traveled together on multiple mountain bike trips, and sometimes he sends it. For more information about Cooley Creative, head on over to www.dojustsendit.com. Yes, that's right, www.dojustsendit will get you to the Cooley Creative website, so check it out. Kettle Mountain Apparel Kettle Mountain has been huge in terms of affiliate sales for this podcast which has allowed me to donate some money back to various trail organizations during the month of November. If you are looking for new activewear, please consider ordering through the affiliate links provided in the show notes, as this not only helps cover the cost of running this podcast, a significant amount of money also gets donated back to nonprofit trail organizations. Now on to the trail effect with the infamous Tony Boone. Right on, how you doing? Doing good. It's a uh, Monday afternoon. Yep, exactly. And it's definitely Monday. A Monday. Uh, yeah, it's been a little hectic here for a Monday. I mean, I, every time you get back from going out of town. You weren't just out of town, though. You were like out of the country. Uh, yeah, we were in Aruba for 12 days, 11 days, something like that. Yeah. For Thanksgiving, six families, 13 kids. Oh, wow. And I knocked out two and a half miles of design. So it was a busy trip. Yeah. We're approaching 30, 30 or 31 miles of design at this point. Really? Mm-hmm. And I just asked uh, my supervisor, I'm a contractor, subcontractor for uh, Inspired Bike Trails. So, yeah. Let's go back in time and then come forward to this. Should we do an official Tony Boone intro? However you want to roll, boss. I'm trying to figure out how we can wrap Jane Goodall into this still. I'm telling you. Well, you know which video I'm talking about, right? I know exactly which video you're talking about. It was a soil searching video where he was talking about where people sit and eat their lunch. Yep. Yep. Glenn in Norway. Classic. So classic. Yeah. Talking about silverback gorillas and being the trail crew and who thought the top dog and yeah. Yeah. That was funny stuff. And of course, (laughs) <laughs> As I enter the last part of my career, I figure I might get to go another eight or nine years, maybe at halftime, uh, getting ready to turn 62 here uh, that I don't have much silver back anymore on me. More of the Jane Goodall. See if I can get along with everybody. <laughs> you got a lot more years in you if you go on the uh, Charlie Dundas route. 
Yeah, I know. It's pretty inspiring to think about that. I mean, right now, I just, all I can bite off on is try to hit 70. So, and Charlie, I mean, you know, geez, he's still building trails. I mean, I've built, built very few trails anymore. Most of it's planning, designing, and training. Uh, and so I did do one little project for a friend that lives all about 10 miles from my house, wasn't even a mile of trail. And basically, you know, the wife's out there helping me. She's on payroll anyway, because she does all her bookkeeping and keeps everything straight in the office. So she came out, helped kids came out and helped one day. Uh, and let me tell you, that was two weeks of pure hell chasing my excavator work the week before. <laughs> so, yeah. I think my days of construction are definitely limited. <laughs> yeah, I hear you there. And I'm not even, and I'm, I'm 45, so I could see where at 70. You can see where that is. Yeah, where yeah. You, where it, right now you want to limit your, your construction, and at 70, you would totally want to cut it off. So, yeah, that's a good thing to shoot for, but we'll see. I don't know. I mean, I've basically, this whole halftime thing, I've restricted my market area very, very small now. It's either. Something usually within driving distance, usually within an hour of Salida, because then I can go home every night, which is something that I gave up for many years, like many trail builders do, being on the road. Uh, and then the other, of course, as you know, is Aruba, which is uh, Dutch Caribbean islands. And that is the focus of Inspired Bike Trails, which is based out of Aranistat, Aruba. Well, there's something that you and Tony have, or you, I'm sorry, there's something that you and Charlie have in common, and that is Charlie was the 2022 Lifetime Achievement Award winner, and Mr. Tony Boone here listening to right now is the 2023 Lifetime Achievement Award winner, which happened at the International Trails Fest in Reno, Nevada. How was that, Tony? That was a surprise, wasn't it? Uh, the board is sneaky little shits. They told me it was Mike Pasto. I thought, oh, that's perfect. You know, he was with PTBA for a long time as our executive director before he bumped to American Trails. I even like tapped, I think it was Phil Penny next to me. I'm like, you know, right as he announced it, I'm like, it's Mike Passo. Yeah, I'm in the inn. Boom, wrong, totally snowed me. Holy shit. No clue what to say uh, other than, you know, thanks. I love my job. (laughs) Yeah, that was quite the surprise. Kind of made me feel old, actually. Yeah, well, you were in a huge amount of company at that one, too, because the number of the people in the audience at that versus a regular PTBA conference is like triple or quadruple. So true. Yeah, so true. So, yeah. So, anyway, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, I mean, I'm honored to be part of that. I mean, honestly, between you and I and whoever's listening to the podcast, I look at some of today's trail builders, uh, like, of course, World Trail, who we just sponsored in uh, to PTBA, you know, as well as a number of other companies around the world. Uh, I think we have now in PTBA 10 um, Australian companies, 10 Canadian companies. I want to say maybe a half dozen from the EU. Uh, Of course, we have HM um, from Singapore with Dirt Traction, and we have a new company out of Brazil. Uh, I forgot the name, so it's our first one in South America. I think there's 130 of us total so far. So, you know, some of these t- trail builders today are just like, wow. I mean, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> like I really, really kind of missed the boat on evolving. <laughs> honestly, I mean, just some of the products I see put out by today's trail builders is way better than 
pretty much anything I've ever put out. I mean, honestly, I'll be, I'll be brutally honest. Some of the stuff today uh, blows my mind. Well, how does it feel to sponsor in a company like World Trail, who Dude, it's I've almost like a this. formality that they weren't in? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I've been trying to a little bit hound them gently for years. I mean, I've been following Glenn since probably the 90s when it was, uh, what is he doing his videos, Mud Cows. Uh, and then, of course, you know, seeing their work in uh, Derby, Tasmania from however many years ago that's been now and seeing how that blew up and just seeing the pictures and the videos of it. And now the Norway project. I mean, wow, some amazing, amazing things. I mean, if you look at some of the other companies down there as well, uh, Trailscapes, uh, Trail uh, Destination Trails. Oh, man, so many. What's the other ones? There's several I've sponsored in. I can't remember all the names because it's just swirling around right now, but pretty impressive builders out of Australia. Uh, and from a safety and, you know, just project management standpoint, yeah, next level, in my opinion. Well, speaking of, of Glenn and World Trail, one of the questions I asked him, and I it was an interesting question because you should have seen the look on his face. Obviously, people don't get to see the the video portion of this because I don't record or post video. But I asked him about directional trails and he gave me the most puzzled look. Like, isn't almost everything directional? Like, why wouldn't you do directional? Yeah, well, I mean, the blessing is, is a lot of their projects, you know, they're going in with fresh canvas. And as we know, it's a lot easier to design a stack loop trail system with directionality and user-optimized trails for hikers and bikers uh, with a clean slate, a clean palette to work on, uh, as compared to what many of us, I feel like in the States have is, you know, uh, essentially an already built system, whether it be planned or whether it be created by rogue trail use or social trail development. Uh, you know, it's not a clean slate anymore. Uh, and I think changing those habits on existing trails, uh, as you know, is an uphill battle with people today it is it's even i mean i've i've found it's an uphill battle just to try to get people to understand why we would do directional trails yeah well and then one of the things we've always said is you know um and i know emba got a lot of this when they were rerouting fall line sections of trails which often were in areas of gentle topography not much elevation challenge and they took that fall line section, which was 15 or 20 percent away and put a beautiful, nice bermed corner in there. And, you know, 80 percent of the people loved it. And 20 percent of the people were like, because yeah, the saying is, is every section of trail, regardless of how sustainable it is, somebody's favorite section of trail. Yeah. Isn't that the truth? Well, I think going back to sponsoring companies, I think we were texting last week. You've, you've sponsored over 20 companies into the PTBA now, if I remember correctly. Over 20 companies since I was sponsored in by Jim Angel of Core Plan, rest in peace, Jim, uh, in 1995 was my first conference. Uh, we were actually Western Trail Builders Association at that point, and it was about 20 members. I think I was the 21st member. I was the first one really that wasn't in the Pacific Northwest or California. First one and only one there in Colorado in 95, and really the only one on the map for a number of years. Which, ironically, when I, you know, was at that point, I could hardly make a living as compared to, you know, decades later when oh, I think we have 12 or 13, maybe 14 companies now from Colorado. 
I would say I would I would I would take a gander that Colorado has more members in PTBA uh, than any other state. Uh, so probably a probably a dozen at this point. I'm guessing. Oh, for sure. And then how many builders are non-members? Oh man, I mean, I got a figure six maybe here in Colorado that I'm aware of that are not PTBA members yet. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, it might not be obvious because I've been fairly successful in my career, but I'm not a business person. I'm more of an educator. Uh, that's, you know, that's what I basically majored in in college. I had a master's of adventure recreation. That was my gig. Uh, I get my jollies from not only getting people on trails, but teaching people how to build trails or working with trail builders and helping them become members of our association. Uh, so, you know, there's still a number of states without any members. Uh, ultimately I'm hoping to, maybe we chat in another year or two and we've got a couple of companies, maybe even out of Hawaii, hopefully. Um, I know we'll have Ryan, who was one of our students in Trinidad state, uh, college a couple of years ago. Uh, he has started, can't remember what the name of his company is, but he's native tomorrow, uh, from Guam and he has now started his company. Uh, actually he's a nonprofit though. So he would not be able to be PTBA. That's the kind of thing that distinguishes PTBA is, is we have always wanted it to represent those trail builders. And now of course, trail planners, designers, educators, uh, that made their living primarily off of trails in a for-profit business. So we've often wondered and tried to tackle, you know, how do we bring in all the other fantastic and super skilled trail builders that work for nonprofits that, you know, work for government agencies. Um, but we just haven't come to an agreement within the organization uh, as a majority to figure out how we would do that. So it's still a member of basically for-profit folks that make their living from trails. Years ago, I wondered why it was that there weren't any nonprofits because I think that the biggest elephant in the room when it comes to like nonprofits that are not P PTBA members would be like IMBA. But as I've dove into the world of the PTBA, especially in the last couple of years and even the last six months, now that I work for a PTBA member company, I understand a lot more as to how it gets to be kind of a, a sticky situation in terms of how, how to operate a nonprofit versus a for-profit entity and an organization that really was designed to help represent for-profit companies. That is correct. It was established in, geez, was it 70s? Can't remember. It's on the website. 78, maybe? 76? Uh, and it was, you know, like I say, members from Washington and Oregon and California and places like that, uh, that were at that point, I'd say 100% working for U.S. Forest Service or National Park Service, but primarily government agencies. You know, the private sector had not really started to evolve uh, back then, I don't, I, I don't expect. And for sure, since COVID, the whole private sector is just blown off. I can't remember if we talked about this on our last podcast, but I mean, man, after the whole COVID thing, everybody that had any land was like, you know, I want my own private trail, you know, whether I need to just socially distance or whether I just don't want to share it with anybody else. I want my own private trail system. Can you come help me out? And like I say, you know, I did this neighbors uh, down the street here out of Pontchart Spring. We've done two or three in Boulder where people basically have 35 acres uh, and we get in anywhere from, you know, a little over a mile to this last one I did up off of Lee Hill was 1.9 miles. 
on uh, 35 acres of land. And that, of course, is because it was topographically blessed. I don't know. It didn't have a whole lot of super steep cliffy areas. You know, not a whole lot of areas with super uh, amounts of down timber and standing deadfall that were difficult. Um, so, yeah, 1.9 miles. And now the landowner will say, you know, build it. And then I will, of course, contact a half a dozen companies uh, that I work with and they can go give them bids. The first time we recorded and that we actually met virtually, we've obviously sent, met in person since then, um, was I'm going to say pretty early on in COVID. It was September, October of 2020. So we weren't quite. I don't think we had our heads wrapped around what was really happening at that point. Yeah, crazy, huh? Yeah, it was. It, I mean, we knew at that point, we knew that people definitely wanted to get out. Obviously, you know, trailheads had, I'm going to say, exploded with use. And there, it was tough to get your hands on outdoor recreation equipment in general. But, you know, I don't know if we knew it was going to carry on like it did in tw- into 2021. And and even though there's been a downturn in terms of like sales of equipment in that, we still see use numbers relatively high compared to what it was pre, we'll say pre-March of 2020. Yeah, I mean, it's truly been a blessing and curse for the outdoor rec industry. I think, you know, the curse has been, you know, just the crowding and the impacts from more users and lots more users that, you know, aren't educated about how to recreate gently and properly on the lands and so i think people have seen that especially landowners i mean i'm sorry land managers uh with stress budgets and just a ton more people uh from a trail building trail planning standpoint it's been a boom i mean you know we've got more members than ever uh everybody i talk to is pretty much booking stuff out at least six months almost you know some people a year so yeah it's been great for us and quite honestly you know our jobs kind of lend themselves to social distancing anyway. I mean, you know, you're going to live with the crews. It's like your family unit. So you don't mix with anybody else. You go out on the trail. The trail is usually new trail. So nobody's even on the trail. You're not supposed to be within the circle of death from the hand crew, your next hand crew laborer. So you've got that naturally, you know, I mean, you know, swinging tools with sharp edges work much better than the little stickers on the floor that say, you know, one meter or, you know, or two meters or six feet, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Buckle up. I don't think it's going to stop. I mean, you saw the BEA report, right? I have seen the headline. I've briefly glanced through the article. I haven't been able to get into it in depth and maybe you have and we could talk about that. I haven't really done into depth other than I kind of saw that coming. I mean, it's been teetering close to a trillion dollars of economic impact, which has been weighed since 2017 and basically, you know, compares, you know, outdoor recreation industry and the positive impacts of it, uh, the economic impacts of it as to the GDP percentages of other industries. And the interesting thing that I thought was cool was, our industry, the outdoor recreation industry, has a greater impact than oil and gas and mining industries combined do. Uh, there's a few other industries in there, too, that you'd be like, holy shit, oh, that's crazy. But it just goes to show you that, you know, there's so many doggone benefits of outdoor recreation. I mean, and there's so many different types of people that can find whatever they're looking for. You know, whether it's, you know, hucking yourself and making your adrenaline flow or whether it's totally chilling out, you're stressed and 
your best friend passed away and you go out to get solace in the outdoors. I mean, uh, what more could you ask for? The surprising part to me to all this is that we didn't start measuring it until 2017. Yeah. And we are, I think, the only country that's measured it. Uh, and that's why I would encourage you and others, especially those that I've shared this with, to you know, share this on a global basis. Uh, because that's just a trillion dollars in the U.S. I could bet you that it's probably pretty high in Canada. Maybe not a trillion, but I bet it's a big old whopper of a sum. Uh, you know, if you took EU all together or Australia, you know, I mean, from a global sense, it's pretty mind boggling to try to wrap your head around that. You know, the 1.1 million is a, that's a shitload of money. Now realize that's not all from mountain biking. That's not all from trails. That's RVs, that's campers, that's hunting, that's fishing, that's skiing, that's water sports. Uh, it's any recreational activity done outside uh, is the best way I can understand it. So, you know, I wish trails was the trillion impact. Uh, then we might have a thousand members in PTBA, uh, but we don't. Well, it's, you know, the other interesting thing of that, and, and I've made this correlation for a lot of years, and I know you probably have as well, but like, what's the industry that comes in when that, when that mining boom busts or that timber boom busts or whatever boom busts into these communities, you know, to, to breathe life back into the communities? It's recreation. Yeah. Yeah. And the recreation is a whole lot less consumptive and lower impact if done properly than I would say at least most of the other extra extractive activities, if not all of them, you know, if properly managed. I mean, you know, recreation can be a negative impact as well. We know that. And that's why, of course, people go through the whole planning process. Well, and I think recreation by and large helps create more. I just, there isn't speaking of soil searching, there was a new soil searching video that I saw on Saturday that, that, that just came out. That was oh, nice. featuring uh, Vernon Huffman and Vernon who I've had on the podcast is out of Marin County. And he's the person that he's the executive director of access for bikes and in his take or the, the general take on that, on that soil searching video is that mountain biking, and we could expand this to outdoor recreation in general, is modern day conservationism or conservationalism. Am I saying that right? You know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, crazy though. I mean, uh, just looking at this article here, it says the new measurement of the outdoor recreation economy by the BEA, that's the Bureau of Economic Analysis, shows outdoor recreation businesses in 2022 earning Five point six three point seven billion, accounting for two point two percent of the nation's gross domestic product and employing five million workers. Spending on outdoor recreation defined by the Bureau's gross output reached one point one trillion. Twenty percent jump, nineteen percent actually from twenty twenty one. So, you know, basically our industry is growing faster than our country <laughs> uh, <laughs> which I mean, you know, that's probably the sign of a healthy country, at least on our portion, at least the outdoor component. Well, and I often ponder this, like, why is doing hard things seem to be gaining traction now more than ever? And I often wonder if it's because a lot of what we do doesn't have to do with work that's outside as a society anymore. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If I get your drift, humans weren't really made to be indoors all the time. Yeah. And, and I guess more, more recently, like farming isn't as big of a practice. 
you know, li- living where I live in Wisconsin, farming practices aren't, aren't what they were. And so you weren't out, you just not outside performing manual labor from sunup to sundown. Like you, like historically speaking, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's, uh, I think it's a sad thing when families and individuals don't get an opportunity to get outside and don't grow up with an outdoor lifestyle. I do. I feel blessed to have been exposed to camping and fishing at a, you know, at a young age. A lot of people don't get that opportunity. So well, let's dig into your expansion of, of trails in Aruba and let's get the backstory and kind of how this came to be. What, if any, was there for trails in Aruba before Tony Boone and Inspired Trails decided to go down this path? Yeah. So Brett Vogel uh, with Inspired Bike Trails contacted me in summer of 2019. Uh, and he wanted me to go to Aruba with him. He had been down there a handful of times. Quite a bit of mountain biking and mountain biking trails already in Aruba, a small country, six by 16 miles in shape, about 130,000 people. I, of course, said, let me think about it. Yes. Uh, and I went down there in October of 2019 and we did a concept plan, what he marketed as Mountain Bike Aruba. Cool video out on it. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but, you know, basically talking about taking a ride on the wild side of Aruba. You know, Aruba is a cool country, even though it's small, the north coast, which is faces northeast, really. Basically, that coast, totally wild, no restaurants, no hotels, not really great swimming. In fact, you wouldn't really want to swim because it's super, super rough. Uh, lots of cactus. It's like Tucson by the Caribbean, basically. So really no development. So very wild. The most popular thing out there is probably UTV tours, Jeep tours for the tourists that come in on the large cruise ships. However, the local crowd blew me away. So back in 2019, we went there uh, and we just happened to come on a day uh, where Tri-Bike, one of the tri-athlete stores there in town, uh, also specializing in biking, mountain biking specifically. Uh, the owner, past owner, Gert Van Fleet, uh, who was a Dutch uh, Olympic champion, as well as just participated in the Ironman the last time I was down there at 57 years old in uh, Hawaii. Super amazing guy. So he had his tri-bike kids race team out there, which was about 40 kids on bikes. He had cones basically placed out uh, in a fairly cactus-free area. Um, And the kids were basically developing and practicing their skills, uh, basically riding through short grass over, you know, limestone. But in in my opinion, a very limited situation. And of course, that's when the light went off was like, wow, you know, not only can tourists rent mountain bikes and go on tours, uh, but there is quite a bit of local population. So that basically went through approval process and got approved in 20 was it 2019 i like i guess that was 2018 that we did the plan holy cow it's been that long ago because then in 2019 it got approved and then shortly after that derailed by covid which aruba had a full lockdown uh and i was chatting with somebody the last week down there and saying man i wish i'd get like you know you know covid and be quarantined down here and you know the beaches wouldn't be crowded and they're like no you weren't even allowed to go outside to the beach. So they were worse than so, California. Screw that. I mean, I don't want to be stranded there then if I couldn't go to the beach. 
Uh, but you know, so, uh, so that hit them hard. Um, you know, the, the bulk of their GDP is tourism. Uh, and obviously when you're completely shut down like that, uh, it is not a good situation. Uh, luckily it's a Dutch protectorate still, even though it's its own country. Uh, and that comes in favorable to, I think, some financial assistance to help the local population and communities, you know, bear the brunt of of the COVID as their small country. So then basically I'd kind of put it on the back burner and forgotten about it. Uh, 2020 pretty much rolled by. 2021 pretty much rolled by. Um, and then I guess 2022 hit and all of a sudden it was back on the radar. And it was let's go. <laughs> so after sitting for however many years, two or three years, uh, it was kind of back on the front burner. Uh, and at that point, uh, inspired bike trails basically started getting their ducks in a line. Uh, Brett contacted me, uh, to see if I wanted to join back on the team. Uh, originally in 2018, I was willing to move down there for two years with my family and do construction and live there for two years. However, since the COVID thing and since things change, especially when you got kids, my kids are super into sports and stuff. Uh, I could only commit to Brett uh, in 2022 to do uh, design and layout in the field of conceptual corridors. So we started that project, I think this last trip was my fifth trip down there in the last year and a half. Uh, every time I go down, I try to knock out anywhere from I try to get a minimum of three miles, and I think the most I've ever got is like six at a time over about a 10-day or two-week period, which is kind of my limited commitment with all my other stuff. And we've been plugging away. In the meantime, uh, Brett has hired uh, and kept different crews coming in. Uh, I think we've had Adam and Micah with Dirt Candy. We've had one of my old employees, Dave Norris, who's out of uh, Montana. Uh, who else have we have? Christian York, who was with Timberline. Uh, yeah, so basically uh, have, you know, been basically running crews in there. It's about about three months and you're ready to get off of the island and get out of the heat. Me personally, I tell you, man, I go to work. I'm at work in the dark. And as soon as it's barely light, I'm doing on the ground foot recon. Because by 9.30 or 10 o'clock in the mornings, I'm already like playing scenarios of, you know, what if I, what if I, you know, get heat stroke right here? Where, you know, who will know I'm here? Will they be able to find me? Will I be able to wave at a UTV? <laughs> and I, I'm like on my homing mode. Because, and even though if I have water, plenty of water, ice water, I still find that I get to that point. And by about 11 o'clock, Man, that's that's when it gets super, super difficult. So I basically pretty much work every morning when I'm down there. The crews, uh, they're working six to two uh, and very impressive to me, even with the folks sitting in the machine. You know, it's just it's the super high heat index. And, it, you know, what is it, 14, 15 degrees north of the equator? You know, it's pretty hot. I was going to say, with it being so close to the equator, seasonally does it change at all much temperature wise no i mean if you look at weather there it, at nights it's usually like 77 or 78 at night uh you know the lowest i've seen it was 75 and then during the day 
Uh, it's more like, you know, 83 to 87 or 88 at the highest. You know, no shade in the cactus forest. And luckily, you know, 10 months out of the year, you, know, you have a nice breeze. And the breeze coming off the ocean, uh, that makes it much more bearable. However, in September, that breeze quits, stops blowing. Uh, and at that point, it's, you know, I, I think last year we even gave people September off. It was in between crews. Uh, we gave the locals. They had to like do maintenance, I think, during that time frame. Well, let's talk about, you know, say I want to pack up my bike, get it over to Aruba. What type of trail experience is on the ground now? And what type of trail experience are they aiming for long term? Are we talking like Adventure XC, gravity assisted stuff or gravity based with shuttles? Like what, like what are we, what's the, what yeah, what's the, expect? what's the, What's the expected demographic that would travel there? It's very much would reflect those like the local demographic. And it's been a bit of a slow evolution over this past four or five years just by looking at bike. Uh, still, the most popular bike there bought from either Specialized, there's a Specialized shop there, and then there's a Tri-Bike, uh, and then a couple other stores. The most popular bike there is a very lightweight cross-country mountain bike, limited travel. Like I can pick these bikes up with like two fingers, you know, I can't do that with my bike. You got an e-bike. What are you talking about? Yeah, my motor is heavier than that. So I can barely, I can barely pick it up with two hands. When I ride my regular bike, it seems so light. It's just like, whoa, nothing here. So yeah, it's basically... Cross-country demographic, but as you know, that's the way a lot of systems are. So the demographic, as in many places, are limited in the beginning when they don't have skilled or professional trail builders coming in, especially those that build trails optimized for bikes. A lot of their trails were up and down the fall line. Uh, they do get quite a bit of rain there in short bursts. Um, I think they get 18 to 20 inches a year, but it's like concentrated in certain times of the year. So quite a bit of soil erosion. A lot of the trails that were fall line, you can see those massive clouds of sediment out in the ocean covering the coral and covering everything out there. So, you know, that was kind of their experience. When we went in, we had some difficulties. We had some flag lines pulled. We had uh, areas where they built our trail, but then would get to cactus and then go straight up the fall line and then straight down the fall line to the next gap in the cactus. Uh, so we kind of just stayed away from that one area. It's called Podvodnik. We stayed away from that a little bit longer. By the time we got there, you know, we had a half a dozen miles under our belt that were optimized for bikes. Bermed corners, nice rollers, native stone features, and, and just, you know, not a straight trail not straight up the fall line and straight down the fall line. So it was unique to them. And at this point, from literally starting uh, a little bit over a year ago when we were called rapists on social media and the police came twice the first week uh, to see if we were all legit, they now, of course, I would say the vast majority of them love it, want more trails. And the cool thing about Aruba, if you ever look on social media on some of the Aruba stuff, like tri bike or specialized, they have an event almost every weekend. Last time I was out there, like at five forty-five in the morning, it's pitch black. I'm driving out there. There's probably 150 cars parking. 
by the time I get to where I'm working, I see course marshals already out. I see arrows directed already racing on brand new trail. It was built like two weeks ago. Um, and then they had women's clinics. Uh, they had some national championships there three or four months ago. Uh, and it's just, it, I mean, honestly, it's crazy how many locals they have their mountain biking. And that really kind of, I don't know that for me, that really like stoked me because yeah, it's great for the tourists. And, and we, while idealistically, I would like to replace some of the more impactful motorized uses and tours and allow those folks to diversify, still keeping their incomes. And, you know, that's important for the locals, uh, but to hopefully have them, you know, doing mountain bike tours, even e-bike, mountain bike tours, things like that, uh, as the system gets more built out. That said, the locals are loving it. I mean, you can go out there and ride and see 20 or 30 people out there on a, you know, two-hour jaunt. So, yeah, pretty excited. You said early on that this has got a Dutch influence or it's, it's part of the Dutch economy. Like, that's cycling in, in the Dutch are, is pretty huge. So, I didn't even think about that or know that until you brought that up. It is, and it's really big in the Aruban community as well. And I think, I'll say right now, Aruba is one of the most awesome cultures and islands I've ever been to. From a cultural standpoint, they're all super friendly and seem really authentic. I've got some really good friends that I've met down there that I'm sure I will know and keep in touch with for the rest of my life. Really good people. Not like... uh some of the animosity that you may see in other countries when you travel to them or even other states uh, when you're a tourist. Uh, but yeah, super fun place to travel. Geologically, it's awesome because it's got basically that limestone shelf, uh, you know, which was created by all the coral and stuff. And it has granite batholith that's essentially pushed up underneath it. So, you know, if you've got house-sized granite boulders and other types of boulders, you know, that you're basically riding through. And then, you know, you go around the corner on the big rock and you got basically weaving through these big cactus forests. They're kind of like saguaro, but they don't have the curvy arms to them. Kadushi, I think they're called. Lots of protected species of cactus. Uh, and they also have a rattlesnake called the Cascabel rattlesnake, which is an endemic to just Aruba, only place in the world. And then they also have a Shoko owl. Uh, which looks a lot like the burrowing owls here in Colorado. So super unique, you know, for such a small country. I mean, for such a small landmass, you could go there and easily not get bored if you were there for a month. You could probably do all kinds of different stuff. Well, and you brought up a, a theme that I'm starting to see more and more, which maybe I see it in a more sheltered view because predominantly I live in Wisconsin, but since I've been traveling a lot more for work, it's becoming more of a thing. But that e-bikes are starting to replace other forms of, of we're going to say, ecotourism. Maybe it goes by hoof or by wheel. Yeah. I mean, look at how popular they are for hunting and stuff now. You yeah. Know? I mean, you see these models that are like, you know, designed for hunters and they're camo and they got all kinds of areas to carry your guns and everything else. Um, I mean, yeah. There's a guy named Sean Gregory with Big Loop Trails. I know Sean. He's been on the show. Yeah, you know, Sean. Yeah, you did a podcast. That's right. I listened to that one. So, you know, have you ever seen his rig? I haven't seen his rig. He's got an e-bike that he's now put like old shocks on the back 
and he can carry a chainsaw or whatever. He can even pull like a small harrow behind it. <laughs> and so, and you know, he goes in and out with, you know, every day on his e-bike with that thing like fully loaded, it has fuel on it, a couple of fuel canisters. So yeah, I mean, super handy. And what I've noticed is, I mean, I like recreation, you know, I mean, I own a UTV with my eldest kid. I do enjoy it. I own, you know, a motorcycle, trail bike, Beta 300, great trail bike. I haven't ridden it now in three years. I think we rode the UTV one time last year. It's just like, it's so much funner on the e-bike for me. And I was kind of a naysayer at first. And here's a couple of things I think I should share is, is at first I thought there's no way that an e-bike could be as fun as a motorcycle going uphill. And there's no way that an e-bike could be as fun as my regular mountain bike going downhill. And then, of course, I started test riding them years ago. Uh, and as they, of course, evolved and kind of really, you know, came up, I thought, you know what, I'm going to go I'm gonna go spend a couple paychecks on an e-bike. So I got me a Yeti E160, my first Yeti, actually, even though I'm from Colorado. Uh, and I love it. Uh, basically, the first season I got it, which was not this last season, but the year before, uh, I rode more time in the first month than I had in like three or four years combined. And I could actually ride with a lot of my friends or people that I work with that are significantly younger and fitter than I am. And they weren't always having to wait for me. And that was kind of cool. In fact, you'd see a lot of combined groups now, say, on the Monarch Crest, our big epic out here, uh, to where people might be coming from, you know, Flatland, uh, and they're visiting, you know, somebody that lives in Salida that rides all the time. Boom, that 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 local here's like, I'm going to get you an e-bike, and they're riding together. They stay together. Uh, so it's been really, really eye-opening for me. That said, they are more impact because I can ride more miles. So if I have a trail system of one mile or ten miles. I can do a lot more laps on that than I ever could without it and probably will do because it's more comfortable. So just that said, uh, alone, they're more impact. They go further into the wilderness. What I haven't seen is an uh, increase in rescues or anything mountain bike related. I mean, I think that was one of the concerns is that, oh, yeah, you're going to get newbies to go out there and you know, they're going to be on an e-bike and they're going to get way further out. You know, they're going to get in trouble. I haven't really seen or heard much about that. I could see that how that could happen, uh, but I haven't seen that. So quite honestly, I really haven't seen a whole lot of drama about e-bikes except for in certain areas. And certain areas, I think, are just anti-e-bike. And whether that involves... Any kind of ego or not, I think it likely stems from if you've got 200 cars in your parking lot and your trails are already overcrowded, you just really don't want to see any more use. So anyway, that's my two cents on the e-bikes. I love mine. I, I'm, I haven't ridden my other one in, I think, a year now. Yeah, and I think you're right. You know, it seems like the only drama that I ever see around e-bikes is infighting and it's usually people that just don't want to see e-bikes become a thing and the reality is e-bikes are a thing it's the same it's almost the same mentality and i'm not going to say it's the same people but it's almost the same mentality people had when we made that really dis no borders really, 
Well, you got snowboarders, but I was going to say the the really hard transition from 26 inch wheels to 29 inch wheels. Like that was a bad thing too, right? Ah, yeah. I always (laughs) felt like it it mirrored, you know, you freaking snowboarders that, you know, that was how it was in the eighties, late eighties. I mean, I started snowboarding in 87 and, you know, there was still a hell of a lot of resorts that were like, no, we don't want any snowboarders here. You know, what it comes down to, though, is it doesn't matter if you're on a snowboard, a ski, a sled, you're driving a bus, riding a horse, riding a downhill bike, riding a slope style bike, riding a commuter bike, driving a bus, driving a car, running a train. There should be one simple rule. Don't be a dick. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a life rule. It, it is. It doesn't matter what you're on. Don't be a dick. Uh, but. I was going to say, I think there's a sign on a Breckenridge that says expect and respect to their users. Yes. Yes. In fact, that statement, actually, I heard the first time by Martha Raskowski uh, out of Boulder in, God, that would have been early 90s. Expect others, respect others. Boom. But I don't know. It's, you know, Humanity is, I, I, you know, I'm not going to get started on humanity, but I would say in general, a lot of people don't follow signage. <laughs> or or more or morals like that. <laughs> what does it say on your hat right now, Tony? <laughs> yeah, stay human, baby. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, and you, it's funny because, and I'm not here to rag on my country. I love living in Salida, Colorado. Uh, I love Colorado. I don't participate in national or regional news, so I can't tell you anything about that. I don't want to know about what's going on. I like my little bubble. It's kind of selfish, but it's self-preservation for my uh, emotional well-being. I forgot where I was going with this, actually. I was going somewhere with this, Josh. Being human. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I know what I was going to say. Yeah, Uh, that was a disclaimer that I'm not ragging on the U.S. But man, I tell you what, when you go and travel in many other countries and you realize that how polite they are driving in some countries and how polite they are and helpful in some countries. And then I come back and even in Salida, I, I like, especially in the last two or three years, like people, you know, like you get to a stop sign and boom, they got to be first to cross. And it's like, man, I usually, if I get some of there, I'm just going to wave to them, let them go because I, I don't want to be in that rat race, that, that fast competitive lifestyle. Yeah. Goes back to the Jane Goodall thing. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, living in the upper Midwest, I still see, and I fully participate in waving people across, you know, whether it's pedestrians or people that, you know, they get to a stop sign, you know, when you get to the stop sign roughly at the same time as as another person, it's like, well, you know, it could be one or the other, but I fully agree with waving the other person across and looking out for the other person because it's bad enough that we're in vehicles and we don't know what that other person is going through, but they might be having a really, really bad day and you waving them through might help brighten it just a little bit, right? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this past trip to Aruba, this is not bike related, but I'll spend this is uh, just what you're saying there. This past trip, we took six families, 13 uh, kids out of our six families, mostly all of us from Salida, had a fabulous time. And everybody was talking at dinner one night about, you know, how friendly people were. And I'm like, you know, has anybody had a bad experience yet? And one person said, yeah, I was like on the beach. And we were playing ball with the kids and the ball skipped and hit this dude in the back of the head. Uh, and I immediately, you know, as the father went up and apologized and said, oh, man, I'm super sorry. 
you know, we'll move down a little bit. Uh, and the dude just like unleashed on the cat on my buddy and come to find out he sat down and they were sitting next to the man that raged on him's wife and his wife leaned over. He was still out in the ocean contemplating and said, I'm really sorry that my husband did that. We just lost our baby. Yeah. That's, Prime example of not knowing what's going on in somebody's head. Exactly why you need to give people the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And not tie into the negativity. You know, even if somebody's raging on you, it's so hard for some people to do, but it's just like, you know, it takes two to fight. And if I'm not fighting, then there's no fight. I can walk away. I run. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm more docile than I used to be, thankfully. Well, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, and we don't have to talk about this for too much because I don't know how much you know because it hasn't really, all the details haven't came out yet, but in 2024, we have a, a PTBA conference coming up at in Lake Lanier, Georgia. Lake Lanier, the haunted lake. Yeah, that keeps coming up in conversations at Rock Solid because we've talked about like going to the conference and you know we're gonna have some people there. And one of our one of our designers is like, I wonder if they're gonna, I wonder if we're gonna learn about how haunted that place is. I've been looking at it. Some cool stuff on the internet. There's even a movie called Lake the Lake or Lake Nanier or something like a horror story. It looks spooky. I'm not into horror movies myself, but I like kind of the whole story behind it, but it has a very bad part about it. Um, and, you know, it's made me think about our one in Reno and remember like one of the most powerful things I think at the opening in the keynote was that, that indigenous man that got up and spoke, right. And, and how they did the disclaimers and, you know, how the whole political correctness now is, you know, you're offering, you, you know, you're saying that, you know, these are the original lands of, you know, whatever tribal nation it was. And of course, the part of that, which not so much the tribal thing, but it's that whole flooding uh, of African-American communities. Uh, and it's like, holy shit, we probably need to do one of those then to be totally like, you know, respectful, I guess. It comes down to respectful. I mean, so anyway, yeah, a little bit heavy for me to think about it, but uh, it is an interesting history it has. Yeah. Do you know how we landed in Lake, Lake Lanier as a, for a conference? Do I know? That was one of the ones that was put up uh, by Aaron Steele with Taylor Trails out of Atlanta. Uh, one of our board members as well, super active. Uh, and the way those conferences run is they are most likely brought to the table by people that can help with them because they're in their area. So when they were in Colorado, you know, there was a half a dozen of us that were there. You know, when they were, when we were at certain places, you know, there's certain people. So that got selected. Uh, I think it was the central locality of it. Uh, I think it was obviously the prices, the accommodations. It's like a whole spreadsheet. There's like a conference committee. Um, I think there's three or four people on it at least. Uh, and that's how it got selected. I don't think anybody had any idea about the haunted thing, but I got a niece that lives in. Uh, Atlanta. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, are you going to be around in March? Yeah, we've got a conference, you know, let's meet. You know, I want to see your kiddos. And she's like, Lake Lanier, that's haunted. Uh, and then thus it started. And then, of course, I've been, you know, sharing it with others as well. 
So anyway, yeah, that's not really trail related, but uh, the conference is going to be awesome. I do know that one of the things I'm looking forward to is the mini excavator foosball game. Yeah. Do tell. What do you think about that? Yeah. Some kind of, they call it a herding ball that they use with, I guess, dogs or and cattle, you know, like a really durable. Two excavators, one in back, one in the front. You can only move side to side. You can't move front to back. Hay bales lined in the court. Uh, and then basically foosball with two people on each team. We could have some pretty talented excavator operators that work for many different companies. I would imagine that will be very fierce. We had skid, tier, skid steer races uh, in the Santa Fe Plaza one year. This has been 10, 15 years ago. Uh, and that was very competitive. <laughs> Is this a, a trail effect exclusive, by the way? Because I've not seen anything about skid steer or a mini excavator foosball yet. Is that is that for the public to consume or not? Uh, well, it, it, probably not because it's not fully set. Uh, but I mean, come on, you got to make that happen, right? Well, now if it so, now that it's going out there, it's gonna, <laughs> it's gonna have to happen. Uh, I, I'm gonna put it out right now, Aaron Steele. We got to make that happen. How can I help you? Yeah, for sure. And I'd never, you know, I don't, I don't know Aaron Steele personally, but when I thought of Lake Lanier and, you know, the Atlanta area, the greater Atlanta area, Mike Ryder was the first person that I thought of for that region. Mike is on the committee. Yep. Mike is on the committee. Yep. The conference committee. Yep. And I've been talking with Mike actually, and it's interesting that we are actually putting in a proposal together. Uh, to do the end end of next week uh, with John Altschild as well uh, to an unnamed place at this point in time. We'll just say that it's warm right now and near the ocean. uh, And it's for basically training. So, you know, Mike and I, of course, have been training people and he especially uh, for a long time. So we kind of did some math and stuff of just like, you know, he's been in it since 97 when he was with Trail Care Crew. He was with Georgia and the Olympic track before that and another volunteer group before that. So together, I think we had close to 70 years experience in the industry. And then you add his eight to 10,000 students that he has taught and certified. And then I have about a 3,000, so easily over 10,000 students. Uh, and then he had about 10,000 hours on the walk-behinds machines and i probably got ten thousand hours on excavators and rail dozers so that's what we're trying to sell to this potential client uh is combining our training efforts uh and really helping uh this potential client build a super strong foundation for a trail program which they've not had the opportunity to do yet well a lot of my formal at least hands-on training when it comes to trails is through mike Ryder. Nice. Yeah, it's been yep. been pretty awesome since he splits his time. Those who know him well knows that know that he splits his time between the state of Wisconsin and the state of Georgia. Uh-huh. Yep. And so we've, you know, me being based out of Wisconsin and him doing a lot of work in Wisconsin. That's I've been fortunate enough to do, you know, trail master certs. I've and I, I've I've attended trail master cert, been certified with him, and then helped him put other trail master we get we got a trail master light that is pretty exclusive to my community, which is kind of just offering a way to, for people to dip their toes in the water of what trail master training really is for those that can't take a full week off of work. 
And then yeah. I, I've been on his uh, skid steer, mini skid steer slash, I guess for him more, more pointed would be a, a ditch witch training as well, which is uh-huh. also pretty yep. awesome, you know, and just been able to spend a bunch of time in the woods with him when he's come to La Crosse, Wisconsin. And so, and I was at a table at the last conference in Reno that was you, Mike Ryder, and Brandon Arce from Dirt Tech Trails, which is a, I felt like I was in some pretty uh, awesome company at that table. Yeah, Brandon, he moved to Colorado too, didn't he? Yeah, he's in Fruta now. Fruta, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was so glad to reconnect with Mike Ryder. I mean, you know, we have not kept in super good connections uh, since we met back in, I think it was 97 when I was doing orientations and trainings for the trail care crews, the Subaru Emba trail care crew, uh, and him, and it was Jan that was with him at that point in time. Uh, of course, were one of the first trail care crews. Can't remember if they were the first or if Joey was the first. I want to say Mike and Jan were the first, maybe. Mike and Jan were the first, yes. They were, yeah. So, you know, having, you know, been there with that and then, of course, watched his career evolve over the decades uh, and then realized that, you know, geez, I need this guy on this potential proposal because he's the only trail certification in the world that I know of. And he's been doing it for 29 years. Across multiple states, many states. Yeah, many states. And if you look at his travel uh, with Emba, I mean, 50 states, it's like 20 something countries. Yeah. So, so needless to say, we're super stoked. And whether we get this land, this potential job or not, we are going to at least start looking for these opportunities. You know, he's we're the, we're there within one month of each other. I'm one month older than he is. We were just talking on the phone two days ago. Well, and, and to wrap this conversation up, especially on the, on the PTBA conference, you know, it was, it was the four of us that I just talked about sitting at the table together. And Mike had said, Hey, you know who you need to have in the podcast? He goes, you need to have Glenn. And I finished the sentence with Jacobs. And I said, yeah, thanks to Tony Boone, I got connected with Glenn and I just scheduled that interview. Like literally within 24, I was 24 hours before he brought that up, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, and to, but to tie that together, Glenn is the keynote for that conference. Yes, he is. And I was super stoked when he accepted that. Super, super stoked. I'm looking forward to that. So yeah, man, I mean, I don't know. I just love that Australian accent too of all the Aussie builders. You know, when I was down in Australia doing projects uh, in three different states or provinces there, yeah, that was some of the best times I had, 2010 to 2012, I think it was. And even though I didn't meet Glenn in person on that trip, I had met him before. And I don't know, it's something about Australians too. They're just, your average uh, Australian is likely way more chill and fun than a lot of uptight folks here. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And <laughs> it was interesting. Like I got that interview scheduled and thankfully I put it on a calendar and knowing that he was in Australia, it was going to be a significant time zone change or time difference for, from when, where he was to where I was. Yep. I had thought I was interviewing him a full 24 hours ahead of what I actually was. And, you know, so he had done a couple podcast interviews with his nephew who has a very, very popular 
uh, motocross and and motorcycle based podcast called Gypsy Tales. And uh-huh, so I, yeah. I just re-listened to those episodes and watched Soil Searching while I was coming home from that Reno conference. I didn't, well, I didn't watch Soil Searching while I was driving, but I listened to the podcast while I was driving. And I, had, I still had a little bit I wanted to do in terms of wrapping up my research to really nail down the topics for that interview. And I was putting my kids to bed, and all of a sudden a reminder went off my phone that I had a podcast interview in 15 minutes. <laughs> and I was like, oh shit. I hadn't even really set my computer back up from being in Reno because it was only four days after I gotten home from that Reno trip. Cause I went from Reno over to Grand Junction and spent a couple days with some people in Grand Junction riding and then and then came home. And so like I quick set up my computer, flipped on the the Zoom thing, and there Glenn pops up right away and for the most part shot from the hip on that on that interview or that conversation. And it is by far my most listened to conversation for this podcast yet. Yeah. I mean, and that's because of Glenn. That's not because of me. I want to illustrate that that is 100% Glenn. Well, it's more than Glenn. It's Glenn. It's world trail. It's Dylan Jeffries. It's the way talented folks they have working for them. It's their ability to train people to become the level that they need to produce the masterpieces that they do. Yeah, I mean, World Trail, in my opinion, is, you know, probably the leading trail company in the world from a mountain bike trail building standpoint with such an aesthetic, you know, emphasis on their trails. Yeah. Just artwork, artwork, kinesthetic and aesthetic artwork, baby. And the fact that Glenn can just like tell stories upon stories and do them in such an engaging way. Yeah. And I mean, just his, you know, his drawing ability is crazy. You know, some of the sketches and stuff that he does, it's like, whoa, that dude is just, yeah, yeah, I'm stoked. I'm ready to have a beer with him. As you know, I don't really drink much beer, but I'm going to make sure I have a beer with Glenn. That makes two of us. So yes. both, I don't drink much beer, but I'd love to, ha- I, you know, when, when I, when I did that conversation with him, I, you know, at some point he made the, some point through the conversation, he made the, he made the comment of him and I being able to cross paths in person, which I was, you know obviously blown away by if that were to ever come to be. And it looks like it's, it may come to fruition now. Yeah. Once again, authentic people. Yeah. Just down to earth. Yeah. Super creative people, super friendly. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, their ability to do some of the projects that they've done, you know, I mean, I think, oh shit, the last time I talked to Glenn, I want to say, you know, they don't even really look at stuff unless it's a hundred kilometers or more, you know, and that's the kind of shit that it's like, oh yeah, you know, that's, that's a project to sink your teeth into right there. Yeah. And the Norway project that he's working on for those that have listened to the interview, know that or the conversation know this, but he pointed out a really interesting fact that they're also doing some Alpine ski stuff there, but they are doing the trails come first and the, and the skiing and the other stuff come second. And how many times, almost every time you have mixed trail use and any kind of Alpine resort stuff, it's Alpine resort stuff come first and we are stuck trying to fill in the blanks, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That might change though. That might change. I think it is changing. I think that's one of the biggest trends we're going to see moving in the next 10 years in this industry or this, I'm going to, maybe I shouldn't use the word industry. I should probably use the word community, but I am going to use the word industry. <laughs> <laughs> hey so i i think world trail uh got uh 
a big fat project in the town of Wabadon. Wabadon. Where is that? So I'm pretty stoked about that. Uh, it's in Victoria by another little town called Sylvan. Uh, there's the infamous Cog bike shop there. Uh, Demian Auton, a single speed extraordinaire. Uh, that's his bike shop, the Cog out of Sylvan. Uh, but yeah, Warburton, uh, I want to say that's a hundred K system in there. We'll have to ask him about it when we see him. Hopefully we'll see some pictures of that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, Tony, before you wrap this thing up, do you have any, uh, do you have any words of wisdom you want to leave us with? Oh, not really. <laughs> is this where, is this where we start, start talking about industry and community? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, I guess, uh, you know, my words of wisdom are just to myself. And that is, is enjoy this. It's been a hell of a ride. It's still going to continue to be a hell of a ride and just be safe and drink more water. And if you know the backstories to that, or if you've ever had a kidney stone, you'll know what that means. Drink more water, buddy. I will take that advice to heart <laughs> and continue to drink a lot of water. <laughs> I'm a kidney stone evangelist now. <laughs> you are a lot of things that I didn't know. I did not know you were a kidney stone evangelist. So that's, that's how we're going to leave it. Maybe that's how we title this one. Tony, Tony Boone, yeah. kidney, the kidney stone evangelist. And then. All the Google algorithms will be like, or algorithms will be completely jacked up. How about the Becoming Jane Goodall? That's a good one. Yeah, Becoming Jane Goodall. Tony Boone, Becoming Jane Goodall in the Silverback Theory. Ah, holy shit. Oh, dude, I can't wait to see you in March. Looking forward to that. Don't ask me to go swimming in the lake, especially at night. Yeah. Let's, I'm looking forward to it. It should be good. Hopefully we'll have some more Australians, maybe some uh, Europeans. Who knows? Maybe we get a group together and, uh, you know, ask the pointed question to each one from like a different country and just get boom, like a little snippet from like, what's the most important thing to you in trails? Boom. Australia from Switzerland, from UK, Canada. Yeah. I'd love to put a show like that together. Maybe that'll be the theme for this one when it comes to recording, getting recording going for that that conference yeah let's we're putting a call out right now for folks that are going to the ptba country that are professional trail builders and obsessed trail builders we're going to be looking for some snippet josh and i will hit you up we will i'll have all the i'll have all the recording equipment there we'll keep it on that we'll keep it pretty uh we won't take up too much of people's time because those conferences as you know are like everybody's seeing each other that they haven't seen for the full year and you're trying to pack a ton of stuff into a really small window of time and it's super important to every for everybody to spend the time that they need to spend both with the uh breakout sessions the and everything else that happens there but also the people that they get to see once a year and the re yeah the reuniting reuniting of the trail family it is i love it it's probably one of my awesome most awesome fun trail families you know i'm in the mountain bike trail family as well i love that one but man the whole trail building family is and i'm telling you right now ptba is you know, we are on a roll. We got our momentum. Yes, we do. Well, Tony, you have fun in Slida. This is a always a pleasure to to communicate with you, whether it's, you know, via text or voice or get to record the conversation like this one. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, I appreciate the time. And I really do appreciate the fact that you focus on a lot of trail bills and stuff. I know that I've listened to a shitload of, of these podcasts and I always get a lot out of them and it's super entertaining to listen to a, 
my other uh, cohorts out there in the industry. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a pleasure to be able to share everybody's everybody. Cause I hear that that's a common theme I hear from a lot of builders is they get to know other builders through this, through these conversations. And so that's, that's an important theme I, I will continue to move forward with cause it's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think within the industry, I know I personally have scores of lifelong friends that own other trail building companies or work for other trail builders. It's because we just share a whole lot in common. And those of us that are obsessed with the outdoors and have chosen that outdoor lifestyle, you know, it is kind of an instant brotherhood and sisterhood. Yes, it is. Well, Tony, you enjoy the rest of your evening. And I know you're probably going to be out in the field the rest of the week, it sounded like. Uh, no, I got off of that. I'll be in the office. They cut me loose. I don't have to go. Crew is finishing earlier than they needed me. So good to go. Nice. Well, I'll be in the office yeah. also. <laughs> All right. Well, Hang in there. I'll see you here in a few months. A few months. Yeah, we'll see you at Lake Lanier, Georgia. And I'm not going to get into the water either. So we're good on that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Be safe and drink more water. Sounds good. Thank you, Tony. Have a great evening. Yep. Thanks, Josh. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you're new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. If you listen to the Trail Effect podcast on Apple or Spotify, please don't forget to leave a rating and review, as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect podcast. Also, don't forget to check out Cooley Creative at www.dojustsendit.com. For additional ways to help support the Trail Effect podcast, check out the affiliate links tab at the Trail Effect website, where you'll find links to Kettle Mountain Apparel, Worldwide Cyclery, and Trail One Components. By using the affiliate links found at www.traileffectpodcast.com, a small commission will come back to the podcast, which will help keep this thing going. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>